That's Hooey Valley, Hooey Hollywood. Where any office boy or young mechanic can be a panic with just a good looking fan. And any barmaid can be a star maid. If she dances with or without a plan, Hooey for Hollywood. Where you're terrific if you're even good. Where anyone at all from Shirley Temple to Amy Semple is equally understood. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, you are listening to a rad religion broadcasting premiere podcast. Damn you, Hollywood. And here's your host, Robert Winfrey. Yay! Tonight's very special episode of Damn You Hollywood as we discuss the worst of the worst of the worst things in the entire universe is brought to you by the famed law offices of Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe. And here joining us on this particular podcast, we have all three named partners. To my upper right, on the upper right-hand corner of your screen, you see Dewey, because he do. Upper left-hand corner is Mr. Cheatham. He spells it with a K, but we like him anyway. And I'm Howe, as in how much longer is Mark going to let this stupid bit go on? How long before my webcam craps out? And how in the world did we all wind up here together? None of these questions have answers. Film at 11. Hang on. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> That was fucking impressive, man. <laughs> that was I. All right, good night, everybody. This, I don't know. I've got, I, fuck look, it, I've no, got, no, we're we're done. <laughs> I got two other bad gags. I figured I needed to get at least one that I knew would land. <laughs> well, I, I hope. I we hope to see. We hope to see more of your gagging later on in in the show. I got more puns than I had lined up for our defenders review when I went on about the hand. <laughs> Fantastic. Hey, why don't we... You throw uh, this many centibytes at me with this much creature design, I'm going to find bad gags to make. You just wait. I, but on I, a more serious note... <laughs> I, I honestly would love to hear you gag more often. I'm sure you would. <laughs> hey, we have a guest with us tonight. You want to talk about it? You want to talk about that? Yeah, joining us for the first time in quite some time, but uh, one of the founding members of what eventually blossomed into the Rattletch and Broadcasting Network, so feel free to blame him as much as anyone else. Sean Comer. <laughs> Sean, Sean how the heck are you? Hey, that's Sean Comer, Comer. You're not. I'll have you know. You. That's your gag. I don't want to step on it. That's his gag that I. How many? To, to everyone. The <laughs> Rattle Broadcasting drinking game tonight is every time we say gag, take a drink, and then call us uh, with your bill for the hospital. You can, in <laughs> fact, overdose on water. Hey, Sean. This is the first time you and me have rock and rolled since uh, Pride Month, where we yeah, went to we we. Yeah, we did uh, some LGBTQI movie reviews for the month of June for Pride Month. So a bunch of triple features, one damn you Hollywood. And uh, then I was like, yeah, I'm not podcasting anymore. Bye. And Sean's like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> so I'm glad to, I'm glad you're back. Missed you, buddy. No, glad to be back. I have not done a podcast with both of you two in an age and far, far too long. And I mean, over the summer, I kind of took some time off too. I, I needed to because summer went absolutely, oh fucking God, everything is on fire off the rails. I don't know so... anything about that. <clears throat> oh, no, no. Mm. But uh, of course, I remembered that there was no way on God's green earth that you two were not going to be doing Hellraiser. And that, and uh, thusly, there was no way on God's green earth that I was not going to be on the Hellraiser podcast. 
So, so and, and Robert, I'm and Robert, I look forward to kind of disagreeing with you on some level or another about that's the future design. So no, I know it, it, my issue is not that it's bad. It's if you give me this many, I'm gonna find them. So Sean and I started the Long Road to Ruin, which was our franchise review, and then uh, what would happen with that was almost immediately Robert or somebody else would want to guest, and then I at that time I wasn't podcasting um, as consistently as I do now. So I would take like a month long hiatus or I don't know, have a kid and be like, yeah, deuces. I <laughs> take over. Uh, and Robert was always my go to replacement host, as he likes to say, he's the permanently on deck man. So there are just as many long road to ruins with Sean Knight as there are with Robert and Sean. But the other thing that now, made so Robert to be fair, to be fair yeah. um, Robert was also the in case Sean wants to do a horror franchise. I was just getting to that. Like. Emergency at device. Least, at least fifty percent of the Long Road to Ruins were horror franchises because it was like you guys. So it was the Hellraiser. We did the two. You guys, I didn't say we. I ain't a part of that shit. Um, you guys did the two-part Hellraiser review, um, franchise review. Uh, you guys did Nightmare on Elm Street. We Everybody all did... say hi to my fiance in the background. Hi. Um, we did Scream. We did. Um, I don't know. We Robert. Were you on the two-part um, Paranormal Activity one? Yep. Okay, you were on that one. Oh, yeah. Um, that was my first, actually. I was, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we did a bunch, especially in the beginning. Like, that first year was like loaded with horror franchises for one um, reason or another. Sean and I did Saw. I believe you and I marked it Final Destination. Mm -hmm. Yep. Because uh, I, I remember that one specifically because the memory came up on Facebook the other day of mm -hmm. the title card that Ben drew, and it's you and me in the mousetrap game. <laughs> it's great. We um, did. I, I know we speaking, did Jaws. Speaking of. Speaking of. Uh, yes, sir. It was the Hellraiser podcast mm -hmm. that first brought a uh, friend of the show, Benjamin J. Cologne. Oh, was band. that the first one he appeared mm -hmm. on? Yeah, he didn't. Well, he heard it, and that's well, when he reached well, out. Okay. Yeah, because on the on the second episode, I got the bright idea that I was going to throw out there that if anybody would mind doing some pro bono work, making title cards for us. Mm -hmm. We would certainly his, be impressed. His title cards are still up on my wall: the <clears throat> Dark Knight, um, Batman the Animated Series, mm -hmm. and Transformers. And I have the Evil Dead in my bedroom, but um, I also have the title card that he made. Hang on, I, I was I, waiting. I was waiting. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, anyway, <laughs> I kid. So, anywho. <laughs> So yeah, uh, we used to have, because of the format for Blog Talk Radio, we used to have a call-in show. Mm -hmm. And Ben would call in, Jesse would call in, Jeff would call in, you know, Sean's best friend, Jeff uh, Jeff Harris. Um, <laughs> Be nice. <laughs> I am being nice. A lot of eye rolling on this episode. Anyway, I want to uh, I want to start we off. We haven't even got to the movie yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey the, tonight's movie we're reviewing, Hellraiser, the 2022 remake. Real quick. Um it's an American supernatural horror film directed by David Bruckner. More on him in a moment with a screenplay by Ben Collins and Luke uh, Pachowski. With a screen story they co-wrote with David S. Goyer. A second adaptation Ugh, of the 1986... That explains so much of it. Yeah, buddy. A second adaptation of the 1986 novella The Hellhound, Hellbound Heart by Clive Barker, which served as the basis for the 1987 film Hellraiser. It is a reboot of the titular franchise and the 11th installment overall. It was co-produced by Spyglass Media and a bunch of other ones, and it stars a bunch of actors no one's ever heard of, but they do have Wikipedia pages, so that's something. And uh, as most lawyers will tell me, 
Um, Wikipedia is a perfectly serviceable place to get information and it is always factual. Wow. <laughs> There's a reason it is not an acceptable source when writing anything for the. Record. Don't tell my lawyer girlfriend that. God damn it. Um, we that, I, I, that is my major. That's the major source of the information I I used to argue with her, and then she wants to throw it all out all the time, and I'm like, why? Wikipedia seems accurate. You can, yeah. you, you can use it as a you can use it as a big mine of other sources. <laughs> As sure. long as long as you go and peruse the references, but no, um, citing Wikipedia has been the downfall of far, far too many a dumb shit high school and college students. <laughs> yeah, I as someone who has had as someone who has written research papers <clears throat> that had to be formatted properly, I was told more than once Wikipedia is not a valid source. I believe it can be referenced in a legal brief. Anyway, speaking of which, um, that so explains I, your that explains your legal history so much. <laughs> Anywho, I have not watched any of the Hellraiser movies. Um, what I know about the Hellraiser franchise, I learned from listening to YouTube people scream about it for four hours. However, um, I did watch it Friday that it, the Friday that it came out on Hulu, and I told her about it, and she's seen all the Hellraiser <laughs> movies and was a big fan. She was like, "Oh my god, there's a new Hellraiser!" I didn't even know. So she watched it. And I feel like this is a great place to talk about this franchise and this in this movie for just a moment before we get into the plot. Um, this fan, this fan of the Hellraiser franchise, noped out after 20 minutes. She was I like, see that. <clears throat> "I'm tapping. I'm done." And for me, really? like, yeah, I, I remember. I, I can see why. I, I if I if I were to hazard a guess, mm -hmm. it's because after the initial kind of meeting of mm -hmm. you know, hey what's up we dovetail into kind of a very like um david fincher seven aesthetic for yeah. about half an hour to 40 minutes and it's very incongruous with the rest of what's going on in the movie so i can understand i can understand being off put by it. i wasn't but i can understand it so here's what i'm going to say and i want to throw it to sean here thinking about your two-part retrospective on the hellraiser franchise just about the original 1987 film, you guys talked about how graphic it was and how and she used the word disturbing. You guys talked about how graphic and how um, truly horrifying it really was. And having watched this movie, and we'll talk about this more when we get to the craft review, it has the same problem to one degree or another that the Firestarter remake has and that a lot of modern horror is, is that, okay. and, and this echoes something that we've talked about on recent podcasts, we're remaking stuff without realizing why it was popular in the first place. And we're playing the notes, but we're not getting the feel. <clears throat> we're not getting the rhythm right. It is, we made this thing based on what we think people like, but we don't really understand the material we're remaking. And so it comes across as kind of an empty, shallow cover. What do you think, Sean? Um, hang on, I think I missed part of that because uh, we all of a sudden started having some connection issues and all of a sudden you guys got real laggy. Okay. I was asking, compared to the Hellraiser franchise, especially the first one, <clears throat> you know, what were, what were your expectations, I guess, and how did it measure up? <clears throat> okay. Well, first of all, I didn't come in expecting anything to live up to the first two movies mm -hmm. nothing at this point was going to do that um i would sum up the franchise as being 
at this point after this movie, four and a half good movies and a metric pant load of what the ever loving fuck I can't even. <laughs> um, what was the right. one in the in the second so, retrospective where you guys were like, "This is the worst thing ever," and okay, it was the whole review. Well, was the, whole... the oh, let's God, all revelations. It is, but Sean, I don't know if I should be grateful mm-hmm. for this or not. I'm going to choose to be grateful that you and I did not have to try and shoehorn in talking about judgment on that retrospective because that's a whole two hours of screaming oh, in and of God. itself. <laughs> Revelation would have been the last one. I Do I hear it on trial in the future? Over... <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. I have spent a long time over the last six years working on my <laughs> anger management, <laughs> on trying to rein in and vanquish my nerd rage. Uh huh. Hellraiser Judgment, because this franchise is second, probably only to Nightmare on Elm Street among my favorites threatened to set me back a good two years at least <laughs> oh God. how much it's it so fucking bad. pissed me off mm-hmm. it was it was nothing than something that was rushed out the door so that someone could hold on to the movie rights <clears throat> so Let when me... you talk about what i was go on I was going to say, l- let me tell you how much I how much judgment sucks. I can I, here's your pitch for judgment. It's the worst slash fiction of Seven and Hellraiser. That's all that movie is. You keep bringing up Seven, and here's my question: Is there a reason why people who, uh, you know, thirty odd years later, are trying to remake Hellraiser and keep looking at Seven as inspiration? Is there a connection I'm missing? Not that I'm aware of, other than sort of general artistic overlap. I don't know. But <laughs> like, please stop. Please stop. <laughs> right. I, here's the thing. I, I want to examine right, this for well, just a moment. Like, because se- yeah, seven's in like the zeitgeist, but not to the point where anyone in 2022 or 2021 is like, you know, what is the quintessential thing that we need to be inspired by? Fucking seven. Like, I can name like 10 other horror movies that you would draw inspiration from and would like inspire you in your remaking of Hellraiser and seven's not one of them. I guess give me one second. I'm going to duck out and then come back in and see if maybe that fixes the lag. Okay. Go ahead, Robert. What were you going to say? Yeah, this is getting well, unconscionable. Okay. Let me, let me sum up some, a, a large part of the reaction to this film from what I've seen online. Mm-hmm. Mark, <clears throat> you've been in pain. <laughs> Emotional, spiritual, physical. Any which and one, all. Which one are we talking about? Any and all of the above. I've been in pain. Have you ever been in pain for so long that simply having it go away is more, is such an incredible relief that you don't even want to feel good? Like you're just happy not to be in pain? Sure. That's what this movie is for fans of this franchise. It's <laughs> not painful. Yeah, I get you. It is the it is the removal of a chronic, mind numbing pain that has sat in your like it sat in your nervous system for years and years, and you finally get it to go away, and you don't even feel good. You just don't feel bad, and not feeling bad after feeling bad for so long is cause for the biggest celebration you can imagine. That that's my summation of this movie and the reaction to it as a general rule. It's fine. 
here's my spoiler for the review. It's fine. I have gripes. I have things that I'm going to praise. But fans of this franchise have waited through so much crap for so long that getting something sort of benignly competent is a relief. <laughs> All right. I'm going to give you the last word on this introductory piece, Sean, and then we're going to get into the plot synopsis. I, I started this, and I know you were having – and I'm not sure you were having, like, connection issues, but I was basically saying that, like, listening to you guys talk about how disturbing the first one was and watching this one, this just feels like a misread of what was so great about the first one and someone kind of just doing a pale imitation. Okay, and before we kind of went off the rails, this is, you were asking me about my expectations, and yes. this is kind of what I was trying to get at. Yes. Um, I don't look at this as being a remake. Okay. I don't look at this as being a reboot. I look at it as a fresh start for these characters, for the, well, the Cenobites anyway, for the universe and the premise because there's there's no there's no reference to the cottons in this movie nothing about that the the other movies are not even referenced at all mm -hmm. um if anything it's a reboot it's not a remake the only things it really has to do with the original concept the movie or the or the novella that it's based on are the Cenobites and the Box. And even then, they chose to go in a slightly different direction with the rules of with the rules of that story. So I came in not expecting a continuation of the franchise at all. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I did not come in. In fact, I, I deliberately I had initially planned on I was going to listen to the audio to the recording of the Hellbound Heart again, I was going to watch the first movie again, and then I was going to watch this one. And then I called kind of my own audible and decided to nix watching the first movie because I didn't want to come in comparing this movie to the first one. I wanted to judge it on its own merits. At the the worst I the most I wanted to do was I wanted to see how how closely it hewed to the spirit of the hellbound heart which i genuinely think it did i genuinely yeah. think it remained fairly true throughout if you now if you were expecting doug bradley's pinhead sorry charlie you're not going to get it if you're expecting a final girl that is going to stand up to Ashley Lawrence, who deserves to be in a class alongside Heather Langenkamp and Jamie Lee Curtis, among the great final girls of all time. Bad fucking news. That's <laughs> not what this character is supposed to be. That's not what you're going. That's not what you're going to get. And newsflash: um, the Kirsty Cotton that we got in the first movie, in the first two movies, is a pretty goddamn big departure. From what Clive Barker wrote in the Hellbound Heart, it, oh, she's yeah. just about a polar. She's just about a polar fucking opposite. Um, in the Hellbound Heart, for one thing, Kirsty is not a cotton at all. That was a change for the movie, and 
Second, there wasn't a whole lot of boldness about her. She was a mousy, irritating little thing that the narration is mostly pretty spiteful towards, actually, throughout throughout most of it. So if you're looking to make those comparisons, well, okay, be fair, and at least note how much the first movie diverted from the source material. Um, This one... Again, it's it sticks to that spirit and honors it, but it does so in a different way. And yeah, it's also not going to be a lot like the first two Hellraisers because this was made in a different era. Everything mm. about it, the personalities, the writing, the dialogue, the um the kind of the contemporary culture of it. It's not going to be like a movie made in the 1980s. Unless you're, and unless you're making a deliberate period piece in the year of our holy, oh God, it's all on fire clusterfuck 2022, your movie based circa 2022 probably should not feel like an 80s movie. Because... That's just kind of jarring, but I came in. I came in knowing it was going to be different, but just glad that this was going to be probably Clive Barker's one last really fresh start to do his creation justice. And I'm happy to say that. Well, yes, I'll probably agree at least in part with some of Robert's criticisms. Um, I came away from it overall pretty impressed but i would say this is one of those rare times i don't want a movie to get a sequel i want this to just kind of be the final the final note because i believe it's going it would send the entire franchise the entire legacy out on a fair on a fairly strong one this is a good one to go out on just leave it alone agreed um, I feel like I feel like I say that about a lot of movies. For God's sake, just leave them alone. Uh, Robert, plot synopsis, me, baby. All right, so we open with the acquisition of the puzzle box, the Laurent box, the Lamed configuration. It's in a different configuration when we first get it. It is acquired by wealthy. Right, this guy's made a career out of playing either just off nasty uh, billionaires or incredibly sympathetic European doctors. <laughs> uh, if you're not familiar with the career of Goran Viznich, uh, that, that's basically what he does. He's one of those two things. And God bless him, he's good at it. Uh, he has acquired this box and he wishes to use it because people only get the box who want to use it. It's one of the things. He tricks some poor schmuck into cutting himself on it and he winds up yanked apart in the background via chain hooks as he entreats the Cenobites or some unseen power at the moment for a boon. This immediately sets up the stakes for a following morality play. (laughs) (laughs) We flash forward six years, not knowing exactly what happened, and we meet our cast of... Let me get out ahead of this particular criticism because I had a little bit of a back and forth with one of my editors at 411 Mania about this. Um, He said, you know, you people don't understand what it means to have deliberately unlikable characters and then try to throw unlikable characters as a criticism. And I think that's fair. 
Um, a character that's supposed to be uh, likable that is unlikable is a that's a fair thing to criticize. Deliberately unlikable characters are doing their job. Our unlikable cast of characters, which is a long way to get to that point. <laughs> <laughs> Our primary protagonist is Riley, a recovering drug addict, alcoholic, or what have you. Her brother, Matt, Matt's boyfriend, Colin, Riley's uh, boyfriend slash sponsor, something. There's, they're connected via recovery process somehow, Trevor, and the here-to-be-cannon fodder <laughs> uh, other person. And, and playing the pig hostage named Nora. Nora, yeah. Um, Riley is, again, she's recovering. Her life's kind of a mess. She's trying to figure out what to do with her life, trying to get things back on track. Trevor offers her a position on a heist he's pulling on a long-abandoned container that's just hanging out in a warehouse. She agrees because, of course she does, or the movie can't happen. It also makes sense. If I say it because the movie has to happen, there's other times when I think that's a legitimate criticism. Not here. They break into this container. They find a safe, which they open by hitting it with a sledgehammer. And I swear this is the only time I'm going to say this about this. That doesn't work that way. <laughs> <laughs> if, you're, if your very expensive safe can be opened via any moron with a sledgehammer, you've got a real problem. <laughs> but they open it and they find within it the puzzle box. They, don't, they were hoping for cash or drugs or something else that they could make money off of. They take it because, well, we've come all this way. We ain't leaving empty-handed. Uh, they escape and Riley starts fiddling around with it. Eventually, she gets high around this time and has a big fight with her brother. She starts fiddling around with the box. Her brother comes in to find her on an abandoned playground in an urban wasteland. And guys, if Candyman has taught you nothing else, <laughs> playgrounds in abandoned urban wastelands are just bad. Don't do it. Especially if you see kids singing by like a swing set, you know, one, two, that sort of thing. Yeah, just, just don't do it. This is one of those things. Like, if you ever think you're in an alternate universe, never go to Antarctica. Just don't do it. Just don't go to the deserted playgrounds. Just don't do it. Uh, but he shows up, and she opened the next configuration of the puzzle box, which brings out a knife, but it won't actually switch until someone cuts them and they get a blood offering. He accidentally stabs himself with the box, because he doesn't know not to. He, uh, She starts seeing the Cenobites, because he's the one who cut himself. They arrive and take him. She doesn't know what happened to him, so the cops get involved. He's now a missing person. No one knows what's going on. She fiddles around with the box some more, argues with the various people in her life. Um, they take it to find an old lawyer of our rich <clears throat> rich billionaire, whose name was Roland Voigt. And this is your David Goyer influence. The naming conventions in this movie are straight David Goyer, because, hey, what's a rich white guy name? Here's David Goyer to give us Roland Vaught. Roland Voigt. Yeah, I believe Scrooge McDuck was already taken. Yes. <laughs> Scrooge had a much more successful interaction with the Cenobites. I'm fairly, <laughs> sure, I'm fairly certain. <laughs> Scrooge was like, I'll fight you all because I'm Scottish and I'm mean. <laughs> Please take Daffy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've, got, I've got what these... happened to Uncle Donald? <laughs> I've got these nephews. I've got these nephews. You see, and the no one really likes my, them. The fucking set of my like dragging Donald away. He's like, argh, 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 you know. <laughs> not the first cartoon reference. Not the last cartoon reference I'm going to be making. No, I'm sorry. My, now I just keep, uh, now I can't get the picture of like Donald with like the fight cloud of dust and the set of like dragging him. <laughs> Your next killer God. in Dead by Daylight, Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> well. I do, you know what? I do now want to badly see Magicka Dispel go to war with the Cenobites. 
<laughs> that would be something. That would be something. Uh, so they take the, again, they take it back to her. She winds up cutting herself on it when it, the next configuration opens. In this instance, I'm going to assume it's purely because the movie has to happen, because that's one of the times when just the author's hand is very obvious. She gets taken by the Cenobites. The thing changes shape again. Uh, ultimately, they all de uh, Riley decides she has to go to the abandoned Voight mansion because they might find some clue there. So they go there. We There's a little bit of a chase sequence that happens. Um, Nora gets stabbed with it by an unseen party that winds up being Mr. Voight with just the most horrifying of fates assigned to him. <laughs> I mean, that as someone who had dealt with a lot of nerve pain not that long ago, I sincerely felt bad for that poor guy. You, you have to admit, that was a nice touch, and that was something this story really did well. It did, and my only gripe is, you know... It must have cost him another arm and a leg to get all of his suits retailored. <laughs> because he's got more than oh, one yeah. that he's able to don. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Nora winds up sacrificed. We all wind up back at the mansion yet again after a decent enough chase sequence. We wind up back at the mansion. The Cenobites appear. They're, they trick Riley into stabbing herself. But because we need Riley to still be alive... They then use this as leverage to don't throw the box away, don't cover it in concrete and dump it in the ocean. You must use it. And if you don't use it, we're going to take you. But you, because you're special, because you have plot armor and we all know it, and this was a bad bit of writing. It just was. Sorry. They're attacked by the Cenobites. Riley stabs the Chitterer with it, and Pinhead goes, yeah, I guess that works. Because... We want. We know who we want to survive this, and it wasn't any of the two people who were immediately available. Rules is rules is rules, and you got to think the pinhead kind of appreciates the hustle. Fair enough. Uh, they all wind up with one more configuration to go, more or less. They wind up back in the mansion, which also has a giant metal structure placed over it that, when activated, functions like the box does. Actually, it, it will magically keep things out or trap them in. Um, this is where we meet uh, Voight and find out his fate, which was uh, he asked them to grant him sensation that he'd not yet felt because he's a rich guy who gave into hedonism. So give me something new. They threw a giant device through his body that attached <laughs> to his nervous system and at random intervals would play them like a harpsichord. That's got to be different. And I'm just just going to throw this out there for those of you who may not remember this a couple of years ago i wound up in a really bad place for a lot of podcasts because i was in constant pain due to uh, an exposed basically an exposed nerve and best really needing a root canal nerve pain sucks yeah buddy so i feel bad for this guy like i genuinely understand his motivation here to manipulate everything uh he then reveals that he'd paid trevor off to if you didn't see this one coming i don't know what to tell you uh, the bloodline's going to turn on Sami Zayn. Shock. Uh, he manipulated Trevor into setting all of this up because he needs to get the device to the last configuration. When the last configuration is arrived at, Leviathan shows up and will grant you a boon. And he just wants this damn thing off of his body. So he's able to achieve the final configuration. And he says, please take it away. After trying... he. First, he tries to bribe them. He says, ha, I have trapped you all in my trap. 
So tell your God that all of you are going to be stuck here if he doesn't take this away. And you know what? Thumbs up. Solid plan, bad guy. Genuinely solid plan, actually. I, I gave him kudos for that. Around this time, our nice gay boyfriend is being menaced by Whisperer. Uh, and poor Riley is trapped in a slightly different room. She winds up escaping. And Pinhead comes down and talks to our poor rich guy and says, you know, you can't, un you, you can't unring a bell. You can't unbreak something. You crossed a threshold. I can't put you back the way you were as he's begging for death. But I can give you something else instead, if that's fair. Maybe you don't need sensation. Maybe you want the other one of the other potential offerings. One of the other offerings being resurrection. And this is Riley's motivation. Is she wants her brother back, and they'll give me back. They will resurrect my brother. <sighs> Thankfully, she learns by the end. And he goes, you know what? As long as there's not this thing again playing my nerves like a harpsichord, I, I, I just don't need my little Mads Mikkelsen Hannibal in here strumming on my nervous system. Please stop. They take it out and say, well, we'll give you power instead. And they wind up turning him into a Cenobite because what else would they consider power to be? As Riley saves Colin, our nice gay boy, by stabbing Trevor. And he's the one who winds up strangled and partially degloved by Whisper. Um, she now is, grant is going to be granted her boon, though, because she's completed the configuration as well. So Pinhead and the remaining Cenobites are like, yeah, we're not leaving. We, ha we have to give you something. Them's the rules. And would you like your brother back? We can give you, that's one of the things. You can have the Lazarus configuration. We, we can offer you knowledge. Nice shudder. And what kind of knowledge would be offered? <laughs> me. Because that's what would tempt me. Like, hey, you can tell me things. And she, having learned, one person in this godforsaken movie learned something by the end of it. She says, no, I don't want anything from you. And Pinhead goes, okay, I can't give you nothing because you can't actually get something from nothing. You get to live with the knowledge that you killed all these people and your brother's dead and everything you've seen, everything you've done, all the trauma gives you nothing. Enjoy <laughs> that. And then... Can you can you imagine if she had gone for knowledge and it would have been I, like... Eyes like, bleeding. <laughs> oh, oh no! I, I'm thinking more along the lines of: Have you ever wondered what's really in the subway tuna? <laughs> now uh, you know. Given this movie's obsession with seven, she might finally find out what's in the box. <laughs> what's in the box? What's in the box? Uh, in the box. So right. she is. She is left with the knowledge that this all meant nothing. <clears throat> Good mm -hmm. on you. <laughs> and then, for some reason, Pinhead decides to quote Cowboy Bebop. And you're going to carry that weight. See, I thought they were going to go with The Simpsons and let us never speak of the shortcut again. Uh, would have been would have been okay. Uh, she leaves with Colin, who should be bleeding out by the time they even reach the highway. But one of our last things is Colin asks Riley, tells Riley, you know, you made the right choice, right? And this is meant to be some like big questioning moment about, did she make the right decision? Yes. This is, this, this is a morality tale. There's no ambiguity here. If this is supposed to be a character moment, sorry, you needed either better writing or a slightly better actress for that moment. And then the last thing we see is Roland Voigt being turned into some Cenobite of unknown. We never see the full what he turns into completely, but he is transformed into a Cenobite. 
and movie ends. Um, again, like I, my my general. Let me give you my two cents before we get into specifics. If I'm going to rank this film in the Hellraiser pantheon, my general one and two for me occupy like which one is the better of the two is largely based on how I'm feeling at the moment. <clears throat> they're different. They're very different movies, but they're like I. I can't choose between them other than at the moment I want something more claustrophobic or at the moment I want something a bit more grandiose. That, that's all it comes down to. Mm-hmm. I tend to rank Inferno as the third best personally. Uh, then you get into three and I would, I don't know. Can, can I make like yeah, yeah. kind of one counter argument? Yeah. The first Half to two thirds of Hellraiser three is yeah. actually really fucking good. If it wasn't just, for the ending, about, <laughs> yeah, it's just that fucking third act where Pinhead all of a sudden becomes mid franchise Freddy Krueger. If, if we have a if we have the appropriate ending, it's number three. As it stands, <clears throat> it winds up number four for me behind Inferno again, kind of as a general rule. All right. Um, let me, let me... I would put this on par. I put this one about on par with Hellseekers slash Debtor. So we're in the like upper mid tier of the franchise. Personally, it's better than Bloodline. It's better than it's. It's okay. a damn sight better than Hell World or Revelations or Judgment. I'm gonna jump in here because I can already see <sighs> where this is going. Oh, this is what I, and this is what I wanted to not avoid because I want you guys to have the interaction in the back and forth and comparison and contrast, but. I don't really have a role to play in that. I haven't seen any of these movies. So let me get my 50 words or less in there. And then I'm going to sit between you two, be the meat in your sandwich. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I got to make it all weird. Um, That's right, right, buddy. Mark, I I, I say this before. If you had half the follow through that you pretend you do, we would have an OnlyFans (laughs) version of this. Writing that down. All right. Um... (laughs) I got trips I got to pay for. So, you know, a damn you Hollywood only fans. I mean, whatever. Like, we can talk. Um, I want to talk about the director for one second. He did The Ritual in 2017. The Night For House. the record. Hey, hang on. For the yeah. record. If you have not seen The Ritual and you enjoy a combination of folk horror and creature horror, really good Which movie. It's on, um, it's on Netflix, I believe. It's really good. Gets the creature hey, part of it right. It has one of the better, it has one of the better, like, original movie monsters I've seen in quite some time. It's real got a good atmosphere the guy knows what he's doing with horror so the ritual's good okay he directed a segment of the signal um called crazy in love he did something called talk show in 2011 these are short films he did an amateur night which is a segment of vhs and the accident which was a segment of southbound and then again ritual in the night house really yeah i forgot he did the accident i actually if you haven't seen southbound it's an anthology series that is people trapped in hell and not necessarily knowing it so this is Loosely yet another stories. This is yet another. Thank you, Joseph Lee, for your consistent recommendations when you would write a bloody good time. For the record, this is yet another example of them, you know, uh, of a bigger company with a streaming service and wanting to create content for that streaming service, uh, but knowing that these things are not going to make money. These things are a, these things are a part of an offering to get people to sign up for a subscription service, and you never know, you never know what's going to keep attract or re- retain uh somebody on that service so you just kind of throw an array of stuff out there you license some stuff you create some stuff 
and you hope for the best. And but you can't spend an arm and a leg on your Roland Emmerichs, your Steven Spielbergs. You know, you can't do what Netflix does, which is here's your two hundred million dollar flyer. Sometimes you got to keep this on a small budget, um, which means hiring lesser known directors or niche directors, art house directors, etc. Um, and I think that was the case here. It sounds like from what you're saying, he's a fairly competent horror director. Yes. Um, so I don't want to bash the guy for this. I think my issue with this movie, one, I don't have the sentimental attachment to it that you guys do. I was not, I've never seen the originals. I'm not, I'm not a fan of this franchise. So I kind of watched this as just a horror movie. And for me, I, I had a hard time separating your enthusiasm for this franchise um your enthusiasm with this franchise uh from what i was getting on screen because i'm watching this for the first time and i'm only watching this iteration of it and going i don't understand what all the excitement's about now i can think back I, hang on. I can think back to the podcast remember things that were said but that only makes me think this didn't really live up to that um i felt like for me watching this it was the characters were kind of drab and uninteresting. Um, like even down to the costuming, like there was, it is literally like what, you know, well, just, just grab something off the rack in the costume department. Like there was no, no one had a style. No one had an aesthetic. Um, every, it just like, people just kind of <clears throat> almost like walked in from a cattle call and was like, here, read, read lines of dialogue. Nobody about this movie, nobody, no character in this movie outside of maybe the ones that played the Cenobites. And that might just be a costuming thing. Uh, costume and makeup nobody in the in the human cast has a particular look or anything interesting about them they just seem like they just seem like drab people and our lead god bless her is trying her best um odessa uh Azian. i mean see my comment about the director you know it's when, when you're trying to keep your budget low you're not paying for a-list actors here and it's not that she's ba a bad actress she's just kind of there and that is my biggest issue with the whole hellraiser movie was divorced of everything else i know about this franchise and just watching it as it is i'm like it's okay um you know I was getting some not seven but saw vibes from it and not because of traps or anything like that but more because when we've talked about the saw franchise we talked about it being a murder mystery it just happens to have gross traps in it um the better but, entries in that franchise yeah yeah and here this is a mystery of what does this what does this box do and why is it killing people and how do i get my brother back so the plot is there um, the motivations are there. That's all solid. I'm just not that interested in the people. Um, and then you got more out of the interactions with the Cenobites than I did. I found a lot of it to be sort of droning on. And um, I don't know. I, I I had a hard time. And maybe it was the time of day that I watched this and the other stuff I had going on around me. But <laughs> I was not particularly interested in a lot of the interactions with the Cenobites. I remember my experience watching it was I would kind of key in when during the kills because I was waiting for it to be gross. And it's not even that. Like, I remember your guys' description of the dismembering of whoever gets dismembered in the first part of Hellraiser with right, the chains God. and the hooks and everything. Yeah. <sighs> and it's, it's a rough watch just from your guys' description. And, and you know me, big sissy pansy, um, who doesn't want to watch that kind of thing, but I was waiting for it here. Like, that's what Hellraiser is known for. And it's <laughs> 
it doesn't rise to that level. That's what I mean by like this feels like they didn't really understand why the people are attracted to the series. I think it focuses a little too much on, and it's weird that I would say this because I'm usually the guy going, no, give me more of this sort of thing. But I felt like it, mm. it, it focused a little too much on the morality play and not enough on the gore. And so the whole film feels out of balance for me. And it just feels like, um, it feels like <clears throat> if, you go, if you would go to the video store in 1992 and you just go into the horror section and pull two or three off the rack, and you're like, "These are CB average horror movies, but these were a fun. These were fun for a Friday night watch on the VCR. Nothing, um, nothing memorable. Just kind of there, and you know, go about the rest of my day. So, I'm gonna pitch it over to you, Sean. You seem like you have some thoughts here, but I was not. I was not particularly impressed with this iteration of Hellraiser. Uh, j- j- for the record, if this was your first time watching a full, if this is your first Hellraiser film. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair, and I don't think you'd really get what's so intriguing about the best of this franchise from this movie. And like, I, I, you, you and might I get the spirit of it, but you wouldn't get the, the you wouldn't. It's weird because like you can see the DNA, mm-hmm. uh, but you you are missing a little bit of like kind of the magic that really brings it to life. Yeah, I I don't know. It seems like it's stealing in te- in terms of themes like temptation, but I didn't really get a lot of that out of this. You know, it seems like there's. Oh, you know, like a punishment for sin kind of an aspect to it. But again, like it sort of touches on that, but not really this version. I just, you know, <sighs> go ahead, Sean. I'm going to shut up and let you uh, jump in here. Or Robert. <laughs> Hang on, he'll be back in a second, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, let me wait for Sean. Let me very briefly say this. Um, there's big parts of this movie that are a love letter to this uh, this IP. All right. <clears throat> Sorry, this seems to be the most consistent way to stabilize my connection is for me to just kind of duck out and come back in every now and then. That works. Uh, Mark T.G. Right. up. Go ahead. Anyway, um, really, this is not the best introduction to Hellraiser, mm. in my opinion. You talk about the gore not really living up to the way Robert and I built it up in the first one and how visceral it was. Well, the funny thing is compared to the source material, even the first movie was significantly toned down. Mm-hmm. If you've never Massively. read for the record out there, anyone, if you've never <clears throat> read Clive Barker, you have no idea. Like it is, if you've never seen the director's cut of Nightbreed, understand something. Even that is significantly toned down because the entire climax mm-hmm. of that features the most bizarre blending of physical <clears throat> pain. And if memory serves our protagonist, say partially close uh, deals with the problem by ejaculating onto the rising demon. What's the name yeah. of this movie? Yeah. Um, sorry. <laughs> You, Mark, you would not, you don't have it in you to deal with Clive Barker. No, but as you guys are talking, I'm now, I, I, like, Hollywood, hi, you're, you're, you're consultants here, Mark and Robert. I have a pitch, Rob Zombie's Hellraiser. You know, (laughs) hang on, hang on, hang on. You joke? No, I don't, I don't, like, I'm dead serious. He'd never do it because Rob Zombie hates supernatural horror, Mm -hmm. but... I'm going to I'm going to preface this with a but. He might have the right understanding of 
character and pacing mm -hmm. to make that work. That's what I'm saying. Like I, I think Rob Zombie kind of known for excess, and maybe that's what was called for here. All right. Yeah. Rob Go Zombie. Ahead, Rob Zombie understand understands spectacle. Yeah. Um, he does. That is have... what this movie was sorely missing. Thank you. That that was he, what I was looking for. Well, hang on. He he lacks the kind of I'll call I'll call it dark erotic elegance. Yeah. That Clive Barker brought to this world. <clears throat> And really, that's kind of my biggest, my biggest overall overarching gripe about the whole thing is the fact that it doesn't go far enough. It doesn't need to go to extremes. Mm -hmm. But again, it's the same complaints that I would have about Hellraiser after now having experienced the Hellbound Heart is Hellraiser falls woefully short of the character examination. Especially Frank and help me out, Robert. Um, the the nefarious evil woman. I'm ah, uh, Miss Julia. Julia, thank you. Um, we get a lot more into the head of Frank and Julia in the novella than we ever got in the first movie. And just the same, there are some interesting character elements that are set up here, but they aren't really taking it taken as far as they should have been like the very premise of what happens when an addict someone with a let's face it probably a tragically self-centered personality not in an arrogant way but it but in a very in a very much think thinks of their needs first to the point of desperation and who probably has a very conflicted relationship with sensual pleasure. And what happens when they get their hands on when they have their hands on the box? I feel like that doesn't really go even remotely far enough. And we don't get to see enough of her relationship with her with her brother, because obviously he gets picked off. He gets picked off first. Arguably, I think the best moment is at the end when after being granted the lament configuration, she seems, I don't want to say regretful or blasé necessarily about it, but just kind of resigned and accepting that this is that this is what she deserves. And she's not going to pretend it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it was the only it was the only possible fair conclusion to her. Um, in a way, though, I don't think... How do I want to put this? I don't think the deaths were, as, were quite as violent because when it came to... When it came to Frank's death at the beginning of the original movie... You got to remember, Frank was a heathenist. Frank had been Frank had been driven to absolute the absolute critical mass of masochism by seeking by seeking sensual pleasure, and the Cenobites, in some very in, in a way, in some very intimate ways granted that to him 
tenfold. See, this, see, this all sounds like such a, um, such a more interesting movie. And and the more you're talking about it, the more I'm realizing that my one of my issues I didn't even realize I had, not to sound like the dirty pervert of the group, but how much sex is missing from this remake, which I think then goes back to my initial oh, accusation yeah. of I don't think you people knew what was exciting about this first one. If this is what you're, if this is what you think people want to see in the second one. So much like the gold, no, why the gold girls got canceled, the Hellraiser, not enough sex. Well, but again, you also have some, I, I think, some really kind of intriguing elements that were added here. We have okay. what amounts to a thir- to a 13 ghosts kind of plot. Mm. Um, some different rules for the lament configuration that kind of drags the franchise needfully away from the territory it's straight into where pinhead all of a sudden went from you know not necessarily being i think neither good nor evil the way they were trying or the centibites in general just being neither good nor evil to all of a sudden being bent on world domination thanks Mm -hmm. bloodlines um yeah yeah exactly um and it gets to where they're far more they're far more neutral and they're still they're still deceptive they're still cruel but it's not in quite such a grandiose way um it's in there's no a ambition much more to intimate them. fashion right right yeah there, there is no there is no great big end game that, that they're aiming for. It is just kind of one intimate corruption of one des- of one's desires after another, after another, and they just kind of keep uh, keep just kind of striding forward from one from one victim to the next. Um, so no, in terms of in terms of visually viscerally satisfying kills, yeah. Uh, by and large this is probably a letdown to a lot of people mm-hmm. but <clears throat> at the same time i can see what clive was really trying to do in terms of trying to tell a more personal story I, I shouldn't even say clive because while he produced this yeah it's true that this was this was david goyer's story um and, and i part. think a lot of yeah, and I think a lot of this probably falls at his feet because it's very capably directed. I think the craft is out. The craft is outstanding. Uh, I thought Jamie Clayton was a tremendous replacement for Doug Bradley as pin as Pinhead, um, and I think I think in a way it's almost kind of a Jackie Earl Haley as Freddy Krueger situation, where admirable job with what with better material we'd be talking about it a lot differently yeah exactly exactly um doing the best she could with what she was given uh, although of course unlike the, the nightmare remake we're not talking about an out and out flop here we're just talking about something that was still really that was still really good but it feels like with just a few more tweaks with just a little bit more ambition we would be talking about a wholly different movie. Like we would be talking about the Halloween 2018 or the Wes Craven's new nightmare of the Hellraiser franchise. Um, but yeah, as introductions to the franchise go, um, 
my recommendation would be do not go with this one. I would say read slash listen to the Hellbound Heart. Watch the first two movies. Your judgment whether you want to watch the third. Um, skip absolutely everything else until Inferno. <laughs> and then go ahead and just jump into jump into this one as kind of a coda to your Hellraiser experience. Um I'm going to disagree slightly. I think to I think to fully understand what this movie means to the fans, you do have to see everything. You have to un yeah, you, you kind of, I, again, you kind of have to understand that this is this is so much better than we've had for like a decade. You know, again, like to understand how relieving it is not to be in pain, you do kind of have to be in pain for a while. I could see that. I'm just thinking of this in terms of just pure, just strict enjoyment. Like in in terms of do you actually do you actually want to enjoy the movies in this franchise you're about you're about to watch? In that case, I stand by my I stand by my state. I yeah, the only thing I'd toss in there as well, I would throw Hellseeker in I would throw Hellseeker in there. Which one was Hellseeker? Oh, that's the one with, um, oh, I forget the actor's name. He plays, uh, he plays the Irish guy in Oz, but he's the one who's, uh, married to, or fiance to Kirsty, and then spends the movie kind of trying to find her. And at the end, it comes out that he's actually the drowned corpse and Kirsty sold, sold him and a few other people off to. Right. Right. Yes. I I include him in O'Reilly. Yeah. Yeah. That, that actor is the lead in Hellseeker. Okay. Yeah, Ryan O'Reilly. Again, I forget the actor's name. Yeah. But he but I include that one because that's that one has left me more unsettled the more I think about it, not for anything deliberate that I think it did, but one you get to see Kirsty one up Pinhead again, which is always great. Mm-hmm. And two, it 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 nails I think the in a very different way, the ending this movie was going for, because the look on Kirsty's face as she's walking away from the corpse of her husband, boyfriend, I forget the exact relationship. Like one of the, one of the um, EMTs or the cops who's on, who's on site at the accident hands her the box and says, well, this is yours. It came out of your stuff and she has to leave with it. So she's still carrying kind of both the literal and metaphorical weight of what she just did to get away from Pinhead finally claiming his due. And the look on her face is for that little moment. And again, it's unfair to completely compare this actress's performance to Ashley Lawrence as the absolute God tier final girl. She is the top of the mountain, in my opinion. She's uh, she's really, she's kind of the only final girl to ever sort of retire undefeated. Yeah, she she really is. I mean, Lori, depending on which timeline we're talking about, and I look forward to Michael finally getting her and Halloween ends before he's undone. Uh, Derpy Gaming wants to know, was it good or good enough to be forgettable? Uh, it was good, but do not go in expecting anything close to the close to the first two. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it's very it is very competently made. It is very coherent. It cares about the material it's touching on, which is, again, so much more than we've had for at least three films that the fandom collectively throwing up its hands in joy at just not having to deal with another pile of crap. 
is is a lot of what's happened in the kind of the discourse around this, in my opinion. And I don't blame them. I'm there with you guys. Hey, you know what? I think you can extend that out to this sort of where we are with film right now in general, where so was it? I can't remember. It was like an article or something or a podcast recently where um, it might have actually been the critical drinker who brought this up, where it just seems like so many handlers of IP hate the fans of said IP and are actively antagonizing them. Um, yeah. and we're like they're purposely now creating projects, creating art that antagonizes the people it's that are supposed to enjoy this sort of thing. And in turn, those people are then attacking it. And then the people then creating it are going, see, these are their animals. We can't, they, nothing makes them happy. It's, it's no. just like the, the gaslighting in a circle is that we're, where we are in film and art is pretty, pretty in, interesting to say the least. Go ahead, Sean. You know, in terms of horror cinema, if you don't mind a little bit of a non sequitur with a kind of with kind of a uh, gooey center of recommendation for you, you know whose franchise kind of resurgence has actually been a legitimate joy to witness? Fucking Child's Play. Oh yeah, the the series on sci-fi is pretty good. Uh not it's not just the sci-fi series; it's the fact that. Ever since Curse of Chucky, um, Don Mancini, who is who is a fantastic creator, and you got to say this for him, he's never afraid to try something different. Mm -hmm. Even when it doesn't, even when it doesn't work, but he still managed, he still managed to craft seven movies, and um one full season and a current second season of a TV series mm -hmm. that still maintains a fully coherent continuity all the way, all the way through every, we're not counting the remake here, but everything that he has actually touched, it's, he, he maintains a strict continuous story told, told all the way. And of course, you know, a lot of fans be a lot of fans kind of turned on the franchise after Bride of Chucky and Seed of Chucky, understandably, because again, he wanted to try something new. It maybe didn't entirely pan out the way he would have liked, but he pivoted to something darker and much more gothic in Curse of Chucky and Cult of Chucky, and then managed to continue that into, you know, Chucky the TV. TV series, which has been almost, uh, from what I've seen, almost nothing but excellent so far. And that's kind of what I wish Hellraiser could have had all the way through. Mm -hmm. In terms nice. of, I like to, I like to think there's some alternate universe where Clive just kind of maintains control all the way through the franchise, and even if it's not necessarily one continuous story like that. At mm -hmm. least everything is going to have that same consistent spirit. I think Hellraiser way. works might work just with little listening to you guys talk about it. Hellraiser might have worked as almost like a, like a Twilight Zone kind of a thing, where um, you know we have each movie is a different cast of characters, different setup, but the Cenobites are always sort of a central piece to it. Yeah, that's, that's, kind that's, of the, that's kind of what it is, though. That, that was kind of the that's idea. Exactly why it didn't work. Well, <laughs> hang on. 
that was kind of the idea that kind of, that was bandied about. The problem is there was no there was no top down kind of oversight mm-hmm. because for a while all what you would get coming out of the studio to keep the to keep the rights was we have a de- we have a and Sean and I talked about this but you have a halfway decent script might make for an okay movie. How about we slap Hellraiser on it? Here's the box. Here's the Cenobites. We fill it out. We make sure we get to the runtime. And Bob's your uncle. Right. I, obviously, I was, I was saying that there needs to be more, more of a through line and some coherency to this, you know, and not just what you're saying, which essentially take somebody's fifty, you know, fifty thousand dollars script and just slap Hellraiser on it and call it a day. Rob, finish up your craft review because we got to get moving to the next segment. Yeah. Um. Okay. Just very briefly on the kind of like because you touched on this, the state of like the relationship between fandom and fans and whatnot. I I, I swear I'll be brief because I can make this point very quickly. I arrived at a somewhat enlightened position on this recently, believe it or not, because my brother encouraged me to watch the Netflix series Sandman. And I know people who've watched it and have enjoyed it, so I started it. And about halfway through episode six, I quit. I, it, it, it wasn't working. I, I was bored. I felt nothing. It, it, it wasn't resonating with me. This is why and, I don't want to do TV reviews anymore. Hang on. Let me make my point. If you want to know specifics, if you're curious, I'll go into it. But no, Alexis no, 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 no. Hang on. Hang on. Alexis let is me doing a whole, yes, but Alexis is doing a whole show on it. Wait until then. I'm not on that show. Again, if I were to, I'd have to finish the series to do it in good faith. All right. Mm-hmm. To anyone who wants to know my issues with it, I'll give them to you, but I'm not going to lead with that for a pretty simple reason. Fans of the graphic novel are happy with what they got. Mm-hmm. You know what? We've all been on the wrong end of that equation so often. Stephen King fan. <laughs> right? That I'm just happy you all got something you enjoy. So you know what? Enjoy. If you're again, if you're curious, if you want to talk technically what I didn't like, I'll tell you. So when and when it comes to this movie, I'm gonna tell you because this is the review what I didn't like. But as a fan, it's just nice to get something that doesn't suck. <laughs> so what I liked, you, you know what you guys have. We, Sean talked a lot about some of the positives. So let me start with let me let me do the negative because I'm better at that. I don't like the dovetailing into the kind of seven aesthetic for the the young people for the cannon fodder. I it doesn't it, it never quite meshes with the rest of the movie, and it's unfortunate because I th- you, that's a tonal thing that you really have to take time and blend. And between the writing and some of the production, it never blends. And okay, when you say that, when you say the seven aesthetic, what do you mean? It's kind of the, you know, we're in a larger city, but everything's grimy. You, you can substitute Crow if you if that feels better. Everything's a little bit dingy. Everything's a little bit dirty. Everything's a little bit... Um, Every, everything we talked about with the Samaritan review. Yeah, yeah. It's very, it's very gritty 90s kind of thing, if that makes sense. Like that portion of the movie, aesthetically. So there's graffiti everywhere. There's a lot of lower lights. Everything is a little bit washed out earth tones everyone's wearing very drab clothing and if you watch seven you know to deliberately evoke that aesthetic seven did that because david fincher was very specific about how he wanted the city to feel that he was setting the story in fair enough here it just doesn't quite jibe with the rest of the movie Mm -hmm. the kills are pretty weak and 
one of my fears for this movie was that they were going to lean too heavily on CGI because Hellraiser, it doesn't have to be a nonstop splatterfest. In fact, the first one is very, when it goes, it goes, but a lot of it is very restrained. You get long stretches where things are just eerie or set up or the really gnarly stuff happens off screen with just sound effects and your imagination does the heavy lifting. But when it, but again, when it goes, it goes, and CGI kind of ruins that because. And I, there was a movie we reviewed recently, Mark, where I said this about some of the violence that was in this film. It was, uh, it was Prey, believe uh, actually the the new uh, Predator film. The violence has no weight. Yeah, it's obviously fake. I was gonna say compare that to Bullet Train, like which we did the week yeah. before, and I think we even compared Prey to Bullet Train, where like. Here is here is a movie where the action feels visceral, if you know, stylized but still visceral, as as opposed to Prey, where it feels very empty and almost like a child's diorama. In places, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I and unfortunately, a lot of the stuff that they did practically, they did very well. Some of it not so much, and I'll get to that in a second. Uh, but the CG in places is very good because there's a few centibytes that are obviously CG'd. Um, in fact, the creepiest one is only there for half a second when it's just like a skinned face on top yeah. of a neck and you can see through the mouth and the eyes a la I'm, Kevin Bacon's Hollow Man. I really thought they were going to do more with that. It's it's genuinely unsettling, and I wish I, they had. I feel like he, like he had kind of like a Mouth of Sauron aesthetic going on. A little bit, yeah. yeah. And, and again, sadly, used for like two scenes and not even two shots, rather, more than scenes. Uh Unfortunately for this movie, when it does lean into the CG, again, a lot of it's not great, and it's a problem. Uh, they do some cool. You can tell when the like you can tell the spots, the parts of this movie that the director was very passionate about, because they work. Mm-hmm. Our car chase where they're trying to leave the grounds after Nora has been marked has a genuine sense of tension and ticking clock to it. And it's very clear this is that the director, like, hey, this will be really cool. I can make this work. And they're just going to barely get away, and they're going to barely get away. And then we'll see Nora watch the front of the van zoom away from her as she is sucked into this realm. And it's really mm-hmm. cool, and it really works. Then there's other times when not so much. When, okay, this Cenobite that is tied mm-hmm. up, and his arms will snap off at a certain point. And we'll get a crappy jump scare, and then he'll panic run his way after our heroes thank you david goyer well, now you're making me wonder if this was like like a um a hobbit situation where we had a lot of the second unit director doing some of this i don't know if it was directing or if it was i think this is more a writing issue just to be perfectly candid i think the mm-hmm. big issue that this movie has is writing well i feel like what you just said though was that there are some technical aspects of this that do lend itself to directing which again makes me think of like you had Bruckner who was there and on set for some of the things that he really cared about and then was just farming out the stuff he didn't care about to a second unit director who was just trying to keep the film in frame. Uh, you know, it could be like that. That's one of those things that it wouldn't yeah, shock I'm, me. If I'm it was. guessing that this is based on how you're describing it. Uh, again, it wouldn't shock me. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> There's some of the prosthetic work in here. That's very good. Uh, I'm torn on the costuming of Pinhead because uh, for a very specific reason, and some of this is my own expectation versus what we got. I don't know if this was a actor choice or if this was a costuming thing, but 
this version of Pinhead always has a forward tilt. We're not quite full on Kubrick look. If you're mm-hmm. familiar with the Kubrick look, that's yeah. Look at the camera here. When they're oh, tipped down okay. and they're like Kubrick uses that to represent that a character is at their most demented. So you get that in The Shining when Jack Torrance snaps. You get it with Vincent D'Onofrio in the barracks when he's sitting on the toilet. Like <clears throat> Kubrick uses that a lot. And it's a nice trick because it works. It's very unsettling. Pinhead in this tends to have that kind of forward tilt to her posture. As opposed and, to as opposed to Doug Bradley kind of being very yeah. imperious, sort of. It was very upright, his... very yeah. sta- very statuesque. Can I also tell you I didn't love her costuming because it because I don't think Pinhead has like a like a gender to it. Um obviously it was played by a man and this one's played by a female, but I don't think the entity of Pinhead has gender and so it is what it is and it's clothed in just a black cloak which is fine it's supposed to look ominous and evil looking and they kind of did this one as like you know the barbie version of pinhead like we didn't need to color her up and like like, oh look it's a girl so she's in pink like why yeah it's malibu pinhead like what the fuck are we doing here like um there's let me speak to that very quickly Sure. I'm actually trying to find like some good pictures of her to see, see what I'm talking about. Like you, I, obviously... no, I, I know what you're referencing. Um, yeah. There's a, there is a color palette choice to this entire film, especially the Cenobites that I feel like they deliberately went away from the original. I'm not saying this is a bad thing, mm-hmm. but the fact that the color, the primary color palette for these, for the Cenobites in the original is a chalk white or an off gray offset by stark black. Right. And it's deliberate and it's evocative. This stuff is more... It leans more heavily into the exposed muscle, consequently a lot more pink. Yes. And what you wind up with is pink exposed muscle and then bloodless white flesh. And I get the intent and I get the idea, but unfortunately the end result is... um, It's a little girly. Yeah, like, it, it does, and unnecessarily girly for a character that gender shouldn't have been an issue for. Well, it, it's not just Pinhead. It does, I feel this is true of pretty much all of them. It's very, yeah. it's very almost pastel. Yeah, in some respects. Again, it's, it's not it's not bright pastel, but if you like turn the if you turn the saturation way 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 down on a lot of like uh, pink and gray pastel coloration, you'd get something similar to this. And it's a choice. Again, does it work as well? I mean. There's a, you don't want to evoke deliberately too much of the of stuff that you're not going to live up to. Like, I, I think it's smart to go in the other direction in a lot of no, ways. But, but this should also make some degree of sense. And this, case... I here's the only thing I would have said about that. If you want to go this direction, my my advice: your exposed muscle and whatnot. It needs to be bright red. This yeah. needed a color contrast more than it needed to be as washed out as it was. That that's my that would have been my issue and. There might have they might have tried and it didn't look good. There might have been a budgetary or a timing issue. I don't know, but that's my two cents on it. Um, I think you're right about the characters, Mark, and it, I think the problem. Yeah, again, this red on her needs to pop, not be this mute. Right. Yeah. So uh, you, you see now what I mean by it's like Matt. It's like you know, but you know, Barb, uh, Pinhead Barbie. Where it's like, why are we? Why is she so pink and girly looking? I 
unnecessarily. And like, and, it, I, and now that like, I'm looking, like, close, like, hang, hang on, hang on, hang on. Scroll that back down a little bit. Scroll, scroll that back down so we see the guy spinning on the thing. Yeah. Her exposed muscle needs to be the red of that merry-go-round. Uh, yeah, agreed. Yeah. That, that's yeah. that. Now that you brought that up, that's why I wanted to put the picture up on here because I'm looking at this and like, yeah, I can see now. And I, maybe because I was sitting far away from the TV at the time, I didn't notice it as much. I, I thought it was fabric, but I, I see what they're going for here. Like you said, but you're right. That's the wrong shade of red. That needed to be, that needs to almost be brighter and a little bit more gory, maybe a little bit more gross. Maybe something along the lines of that color. Yeah. For it to yeah, work. Something like, something like that. Um, Okay, so there so we are again. We're, we, you know, we're, we're, we're evoking some of a, um, well, what's the show that everyone loves on Hulu? The, uh, the one with the nuns, not the nuns. The, yeah, the, the, the one, the abortion show that everyone loves. Um, damn it. Oh, oh Handmaid's Tale. The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, we're evoking like a handmaid, like a, you know, like a kinky Handmaid's Tale here thing going. But again, it's, it's got this like really weird pink tone to it. Well, since you had Whisper up on the screen there a minute ago. Mm-hmm. This is the only. This is the one design for the Cenobites in this one that I do not. I did not care for this version of Whisper at all. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you why. Did you like her better as a Nitro Girl? Please stop. (laughs) Thank you. The the get up on Whisper looks too fake. Yeah. The Whisper Mm. in the original is kept minimal and her throat is cut open and splayed open like that, but it's literally from here to here. Mm-hmm. So she speaks in a whisper because this, her voice box is exposed right? and it's held open by things that kind of come out of her cheeks. And it's horrifying in its simplicity. <laughs> Whereas what we have with her is basically a second orifice that's opened up from here to about here. <clears throat> and then she split open again, further down and there's a scene where she like walks out of shadow into light and I'm watching this going, oh, you wanted to go for exposed muscle there on your on your costume, on your suit. The problem is your muscle isn't moving while she's moving. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I'm very aware of how fake that all is. Yeah. All right. Anything else, Robert? Yeah. Um, I had a couple of major... <laughs> Hang on. I had a couple of major concerns after watching the trailer. And they were as follows and I'm going to get to all of them. Um, one was worried about the acting and the actors. I think that largely panned out. It wasn't terrible, but it's not, it's not great. It's, if you were to stereotype acting in a horror movie, that's what we've got here. Good, bad, you know, that, that's kind of how that is. I was worried about the music. Now, trailer music does not equal film music 90% of the time. So I, I put that up there as an important caveat, but that did concern me. So I paid, so listening to the music here. And I think the, I think the only part of this movie, the production team who didn't get the memo about please don't evoke too much of the first two was our composer because there's huge segments of this that are basically homages slash lifted from Christopher Young's excellent one might Soundtrack. even say one might even most say there last are, most about the last 15 minutes mo- yeah. one, one might even say they're a cover song of the original yeah in places it very much is and it's very noticeable um and i would have i would have rather he did his own thing because the the composer in this case has enough other credits to his work uh, he's actually worked with the director before he scored uh, the ritual so i know the man knows what he's doing 
And um, the funny thing is, there were parts of the about the first two acts, and it's it's so subtle. I couldn't blame a lot of people for maybe not noticing it, and maybe I'm even hallucinating a little bit because I was kind of waiting for it. But there are parts where I'll catch like just a little tinge of maybe a chord or a chord structure or something. Oh, they're there. In the score that that sounds just ever so slightly like I'm waiting any second after hearing it for Christopher Young's theme or some or some variation yeah. on it to kick in, and you know it doesn't it, quite do it. That that legitimately impressed me. You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of uh, Cypress Hill covering "Jump Around" by House of Pain. Just keep going. That was done for somebody very specifically. Yep, just Fair keep enough. going. <laughs> All right, here was my other big concern <laughs> i miss that face sean i really do <laughs> my other big concern was pinhead not for the costuming but for the voice mm -hmm. now having seen the movie i figured out what my big issue was but my my big con my concern about the modulation that went on and i figured this out as the movie played the voice clips they selected for the trailer were times when the modulation was different from how it is. Her modulation changes throughout this movie. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's, I don't, some of it's doubled. Some of it is just, again, some of it's modulated in other ways and different iterations of the modulation work better than others. And when you're going to change it a lot, that's going to be the case. Unfortunately, a lot of the lines they lifted for the trailer were when it was in a, a configuration that graded on me in the wrong way that made me go, please stop talking. Please stop talking. <laughs> Here's the other thing. And having rewatched the trailer, I'm sure of this as much too. Now, I don't know if this is the actress. I don't know if this was the way she, this was a directorial choice, but this actress in this performance lisps on her S's. To the point where when she goes, we have such, we have, it sounds like this, we have such sights to show you. I was waiting for Elmer Fudd to kick in. Like, it's really, really, like, it's a really noticeable thing, the way she is lisping on those S's. And I, I have to assume it was a, either an actor choice or a director choice, because if you, you can't be a professional actor with that speech pattern it's too off-putting and it it really is unfortunate again especially for that line because that that's one of those lines man that if you're gonna put i think they shouldn't have used it to be unbearably candid i i, I get that it's it's the iconic pinhead line it's on the freaking movie posters like we have we have such sites to show you but if you can't get the delivery on that and I don't think they did here. And again, I don't know if this is director. I don't know if this is actor. I don't know what combination of it is. I actually laughed. <laughs> and that's the exact opposite. Like put her, put this version of that line next to Doug Bradley's from the original. There is no comparison. And by using that exact line, this is the only time I'm going to make that direct comparison, by the way, you're inviting it. Please don't invite it. Because that's a disservice to your film. Don't do that. You shouldn't have done it. I don't know what you should have said instead. Come up with a different line. But that's one of those lines, man. You do that right. You do that justice. Or you wisely don't do it at all. And sadly, 
I'm going to assume Goyer, man, because he's the kind of screenwriter who would say, this is something I have to put in here, whether or not the actor can handle it. And unfortunately, didn't work out this time. Um, again, other instances of the voice modulation are fine. I I got a, I came around to this pinhead screen presence kind of by the end because it's very different. But I did get there, and I kind of got what they were going for by the time the movie wraps. But it's it it should I feel like it shouldn't have taken that long. Here's the other problem with the Cenobites in this. And this is to Mark's point. Hey, let's remake something but not understand what makes it work. You know how much screen time the Cenobites have in the first movie? Barely any. Less it's, than it's taken. It is it is Frank, Julia, and Kersey's movie. Far more than it is the Cenobites. They're in that movie for less than 10 minutes. They have less than 10 minutes of screen time. Understanding when less is more <laughs> is kind of a key component of making these things work. Believe it or not, they're not even on the screen all that much in two, where they're featured more prominently. There's still giant segments of that that are either just in the hospital or Charnard and Julia. Like they sh Again, they're featured more prominently, but the Cenobites are one of those instances where more is not better. You don't want more of them. Uh, it, it, it ruins the, it partially it ruins the illusion. It, they're meant to be shocking and shock goes away. The more you're exposed to it. It's why exposure ther therapy works. I think this movie overuses various Cenobites and I, uh, it's unfortunate because when the restraint is shown, I think it works. Mm -hmm. Um, like the first time they show up and kind of menace Riley after she avoids being stabbed, I no. thought worked quite well as just kind of a, again, in the background, briefly seen in frame. Uh, the fact that by the end of it, we're just full on conversations between <laughs> Pinhead and Riley as Pinhead goes, you know, you have plot armor, so I'm curious to see what you'll do with the box rather than just taking you right now for no discernible reason other than your plot armor. So what you're saying is you're kind of longing for more moments like Doug Bradley just standing over the pile of the pile of gore and just saying, we want the one who did this. Yeah. And I, I love that scene also because he doesn't chase Kirsty when she runs. <laughs> like Pinda doesn't chase people. We are, um, yeah. we are yeah, an hour, so, almost an hour and a half into this. We got to get going. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, again, final thoughts. For me, this is, again, in the Hellraiser pantheon of films from the highest. Hellraiser, I will stand by this also for the Hellraiser franchise. I don't think there's another horror franchise. I don't care how high your highs are. I don't care how low your lows are. You don't have the highs of this contrasted with the lows of this in any one franchise. Even Nightmare on Elm Street, which has some god-awful lows. I was going to say, Friday the 13th, you don't think some high highs and low lows? I, it does. Two ca <laughs> with, hang on. It does, but with a couple of caveats. I mean, One, Jason X, Jason Goes to Space. Stop. Let me let me make my point here about this. Mm -hmm. First of all, Jason, Jason X is hilarious. It understands that it's a comedy. Okay. Mm -hmm. Second, I love Nightmare on Elm Street the good entries into that franchise. I do. I love them. I don't think they're as good as the first two Hellraiser movies. I just don't. 
And you can argue it. It's a per it, that's a personal thing. And if you disagree with me, I don't think you're wrong. But for me, here's the other thing. When I talk about the highs of highs to the lows, I'll watch that god-awful Nightmare on Elm Street remake before I ever touch Revelations or Judgment again. Ever. I gotta watch these now just to see what the hell you guys are on about. You want to? No. Okay. You know what? You want to do that to yourself after we're warning you? Fine. Go ahead. I'm. I don't know where they're standing, but they're somewhere. Which is the dirt worse, Revelations? You can argue Revelations or Judgment. Like it. It kind of depends. Look. You know what? You would hate Revelations. Ten years. You're not going to listen to me. Fine. (laughs) Why don't you go throw (laughs) Jason Goes to Hell in there too? Give it a try. Triple feature. Here's why you would hate Revelations more, Mark. In 10 words or less. About a third of it is found footage. Ugh. Well, now I don't care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> All right, are we done here? Uh, so, again, so my point about that, in the Pantheon, again, I said I rank it somewhere around fifth position, give or take, which is better than a lot of this franchise. Again, we're 11 movies deep at this point. If you're top half, you're doing pretty good. Um, this is as close to reward as long suffering fans of this franchise are ever going to get. I don't, I think we've just lost too many of the people who knew what made this thing work in film in cinematic form to get something that's genuinely great. So I will accept at this point passable as just, again, as just something that's not giving me more pain. <laughs> yeah. It's, it sounds like a domestic violence situation. It's like, oh, well, he didn't beat me tonight, so I guess he must love me. I, You know, this is one of those franchise. I This franchise and a period of and the authority angle on Monday Night Raw got me <laughs> out of abusive relationships with media. And on that note, can I, may, may I move on? Here, yes, here sir. Come, yes, here we go. Here comes the money. All right. Well, there is no money to be had. This was a streaming movie on Netflix. Um, let's put that there. there we go. Uh, just release information. Hellraiser had its world premiere at the Fantastic Fest in Austin, Texas on September 28, 2022. It screened at Beyond Fest in Santa Monica, California on October 4th, 2022. The film was released in the U.S. by the Disney Flat platform distribution via streaming exclusively on hulu october 7th as a hulu original and we'll get to the reception in just a second and yeah there's no budget on this i, ha- I haven't really heard anything li- about no listed budget that's unfortunate a lot of I, these, a lot of these streaming movies they don't know. List budget if i had to guess we're in the 50-ish million range probably between prosthetic work and cgi i would say yeah so this past week, as far as what was in the box office, Smile, which I will be seeing Wednesday. Uh, Good luck. Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to be like 10 over my eyes. Um, <laughs> I think you'll be fine. Uh, that was the number one movie of the weekend. Lyle, Lyle, Crocodile. Unfortunate. Uh, Dude, Lyle, Lyle, if you couldn't unseat Smile in its second week. Yeah. That ain't good. That debuted at number two. Amsterdam, which apparently is bombing in all kinds of directions, uh, came in at number three. The Woman King, the might, the, the hailed Woman King. The For the feminine... record, I have another reason to hate that movie, having never actually seen it. Believe it or not, okay, it is utterly ahistorical. 
That the actual cool. story is so much more interesting than this piece of shit movie. That fell from three to four. Don't worry, darling, which the um, pitch meeting guy just tore pieces. And I think it was somewhere Dude. else. Crit- yeah, I think even the critically acclaimed guys were like, what the I fuck with this movie? Uh, that fell I from love- two to five. Ryan George is great. Also, Don't Worry, Darling should have a subtitle. Uh, like, like Dr. Strangelove, you know, how I, lear- how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How I learned that Olivia Wilde is the worst person in the world to work for. Please bring back Harvey Weinstein. I have, I still have no idea what happened there just because I haven't been arsed to really catch up on that whole yeah. backstory. I just know there's I, there's a whole thing with um, Florence Pugh can't Wilde. stand her. Yeah, Florence and Florence Pugh and Chris Harry Pi- Styles, I think. Harry Styles is in it. Chris Pot, like no one who worked on that thing has a good thing to say about the experience of working on it. So Avatar dropped from four to six. I took my kids to go see Avatar uh, Friday. And my, what was their was, reaction? So, well, I want to talk a couple. I want to talk about a couple of things in my experience with taking my kids to this one. Um, I've now started to refer to my son as the critical stinker because <laughs> <laughs> because I'm sitting with my daughter, 11 years old, a lovely child, just obedient <laughs> and sweet and everybody's friend needs some help with math. But she's she's really just the best kid. And she grew up with the Disney princesses, um, and she loves the Little Mermaid. And I have my son, who is eight years old and is basically <laughs> a miniature version of me, um, <laughs> minus the love of combat sports. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I'm watching the trailer, the teaser trailer for the Little Mermaid that everyone else has seen at this point. I actually I haven't really been watching trailers because I go to the movies enough that I just I don't want the experience ruined anymore. So I just I wait to see them in the in the theaters. I don't watch them on YouTube anymore. Anyway, the tr- um, they do the teaser trailer and they do the up close of the new actress playing Ariel. And my daughter shrieks with glee. She's like almost in oh. tears. She's so happy. Like the whole like argument, neckbeard argument over this being a black actress and the color of her hair and all of that. Utterly lost on my daughter, who's just so happy to see the Little Mermaid in live action and is just... I'm- I'm sure she'll be very happy until she actually has to see the movie and then deal with that trauma. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. But, <laughs> but my point is her, her, her initial visceral reaction to the trailer was of joy. And I hear in the distance, my son go, yeah, that doesn't look that great. It's, and and to, my, be, <laughs> to be fair, your son's right. The cinematography on that thing and the color saturation and whatnot, it does not look good. And and in, and it just kind of a surmising of everything Twitter. My daughter going, "I like it." Shut up. And my son going, "I can't help it if it sucks. <laughs> it's not my fault." And I'm just listening to the two of them. Like I have, I have raised Twitter. What you've what you've distilled is damn you Hollywood into a twenty second interaction. <laughs> yeah, really, uh, no shit. Well, that brings me to my second thing. So we watched Avatar, and my daughter has all the right reactions. All the the military is dumb. The blue cat people are great, you know. And why are we killing all the indigenous Indians and all of that? She's having all the right reactions you're supposed to have to this movie. My Congratula- son, the- congratulations, James Cameron. You've once again successfully manipulated a preteen girl. Yeah, my son. <laughs> My son, I look at him and I'm like, Jonas, what did you think of Avatar? He was like, I was entertained. I just have one question. I'm like, what's that, son? He was like, if you and Robert were reviewing this movie, would there be a lot of screaming? (laughs) (laughs) 
And I was like, wow, dude. <laughs> and I had to explain to him that the what the words derivative and cultural touchstone meant. Uh, because that's Avatar in a nutshell. Anyway, um, we had fun though. Um Moving on, that yeah, that uh, that dropped from four to six. Barbarian maintained its spot at number seven, uh, five minutes in. Bros dropped from five to eight. Um, Top Gun Maverick rose a spot from ten to nine. Top Gun Maverick is going to single handedly make Disney try to buy that IP. <laughs> Terrifier came in at number ten. In- oh, Terrifier there, too. There, 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 there is no try with Disney. There is buy or not buy. No, they. They're having to be careful because at the moment they're not quite big enough to actually outmuscle the federal government, but they're getting close. <laughs> Trying if they get too much, if they get too much bigger right now, they can be they can be slapped down with antitrust losses and whatnot. But all right, uh, Triangle of Sadness debuted at twenty one. Tar um, debuted at number twenty three. The story life of AJ Frickery at twenty four. Project Wolf Hunting thirty three. Petty Pretty Problems at thirty six. Losing Ground, which is a re-release at 47, and that was The weekend. Um, I- I've heard lots of good things about Smile. I'm not really surprised it maintained its spot at number one, number one. Lilile Crocodile seems like it's one of those things where, like, if families were motivated to go see it, it might have done fine, but I'm not entirely sure this was even reaching families. That movie makes me feel bad for Javier Bardem, because he's so talented. Mm-hmm. Um, worldwide, not a lot of changes here. Top Gun, Jurassic World, Doctor Strange, Minions, The Batman, Thor, Watergate, Fantastic Beasts, Sonic, Uncharted. Everything's pretty much where it was last week. Uh, here are all the movies currently doing better than Morbius. Uncharted, Elvis, The Bad Guys. <laughs> I love it when people who haven't heard me do that bit are on and they laugh every time. No, it's a, it's a good bit. Uh, Lightyear, Too Cool to Kill, Nice. Hey, 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 Bullet Train did better than Lightyear. Yeah. If, if we didn't need to be convinced that Lightyear was fucking, uh, you know, world this year, one of this year's biggest bombs um, in terms of like potential versus actual. DC, and it, again, like you hit the nail on the head there. It's how do you screw that up? That shouldn't have been that hard. Yeah, no, that that Pixar has some big egg on its face. Um, DC League of Super Pets, The Lost City. Nope. All currently doing better than Morbius. All right. Um, as far as. We are pretty much pulling the the plane now out of the the tailspin. Um, we we're riding the ship. We're just about done with streaming movies for a while, but we're, it's kind of like a slow transition back to theatrical exclusivity because this week, and I and I say that because if you've been following the MU Hollywood, it was after Bullet Train, which was our last in our last in theater exclusive. Great, not in this particular order, but Prey, The Gray Man, uh, Samaritan, Pinocchio, uh, and I think there was like one, there might have been one more in there. Um, this week coming up, this Friday is Halloween ends. Blonde, yeah. I understand your desire to put off your trauma, but we did review Blonde. Yes, that was the last one. That was last week. Very good. Um, so this week coming up is Hollywood Halloween ends, but that's also day and date on Peacock, not a real, which is not a real service. So, and then after that is Black Adam. And then after that, that I is deeply appreciate that I beat that into you. Uh huh. Listen, this, <laughs> this is mutual, man. You've stolen my bits. I've stolen back, you, you know, your bits. Uh, you know, we are, we're a team, buddy. Um, 
So that being said, uh, like I said, we got Halloween end, which will win its weekend, despite the fact that it's day and date. I actually think a lot of people are going to go to the theater to see that because I don't right. think I don't think a lot of people have Peacock to see it at home. Plus, I think I think we're at a place now where if people want the in theater experience, they'll go. Not you know, you're either wearing a mask or you're not. But I don't think the I'm afraid of COVID thing is as prevalent now as it was a year ago. It's definitely not as definitely not as a year ago. Damn, but I would say I, I would say three last three to six months. It's just you know you you at one point talked about COVID as being endemic, and I think that's just where it is now. Where it's out, it's yes. just part of the culture. It's part of the medical culture. It's just, you know, it's like flu season. It's something we're all living with. And if you yep. want to go to the movies, you go. If you don't, you don't. You know, it's it's no longer about avoiding the, the virus. Um, we spent way too much time. As a purely, not as a political thing, but purely mm -hmm. as a logistical response to what happened. Like, oh, gosh, nobody handled that right. Nobody. <laughs> All right, and then we return to theater in theater exclusivity with Black Adam, which will win its weekend. Then Pray for the Devil, which will win its weekend. Um, yeah. Not sold on that. I mean, it's not, not a whole lot of wide releases here to be. I'm just, with. I'm just saying, Black Adam might repeat. That's all I'm saying. That's that's fair. I'll I'll take that. Uh, November fourth, we've got uh, the wide release of Armageddon Time. I frankly think that um i have no idea what that is that would be sean coming in and out no i'm in um, the movie oh yeah uh we, we saw the trailer for it for um we saw the trailer for it when um i took the kids to go see avatar in any case uh that might be a situation where either prey or black adam are still one <clears throat> one and two and then november 11th is black panther that'll easily win yeah. its weekend oh, despite yeah. the three hour fucking runtime three hour runtime uh, sons of bitches. Sons of bitches. Um, so Who yeah, thought that was a good idea. God. Uh, and then after that, the 18th, we have the menu being competitive with 13 lives. And she said, Hey, Robert, I, I edited the schedule. I'm going to be really busy that weekend. So we're just going to do the menu instead of the menu. And she said, I'm sparing you. I'm sparing you another Me Too movie is basically what's happening here. I'll just watch it when I have time. I appreciate not only do I appreciate that, I guarantee you the audience appreciates that. <laughs> and then Strange World um, is your Thanksgiving release. It'll win its weekend, though. I saw the trailer for The Fablemans. It actually looks really good. I just don't. I, I That's one where I think people like my parents' age will go see it and not, not me. Yeah, it, it's too hard to sell to the wide audience. Yeah. Um, Violent Night. Oh, yeah. Hook that <laughs> into my veins, baby. Give yeah. me more David Harbour. I have plans on the calendar to see that. We will be reviewing it. Um, that'll win this I weekend. I insist you take your son to that movie. Ooh, that Oops. comes up birthday. Um, do you mind if I do you mind if I sit in on that one? What? Uh, Violent Night. Yes. Maybe. Let's I have see. no objection. I don't. No one. Uh, Alexis is going to be on that show. She beat you to it. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. So what's funny about that? I'm mildly amused as the schedule master. I am mildly amused because she she was like, "Oh, hey, let me get in on Hellraiser." I'm like, "Sean beat you to it." She's like, "Fuck, never mind." Tough shit. <laughs> no, it's, it's fine. Like both of you, it's just like, "Oh, he's he's gonna be there. She's gonna be there." Um, Stay anyway, mad. she's fine. You're fine. We're all fine. Uh, <laughs> that? Stay mad. Anyway, uh, so yeah, Violent Nights, December second, and then the ninth. 
So the ninth is Empire of Light, which is in wide release. Here's what I and insist it, we all do on the, for the ninth. Okay. Nothing. No, no, no. I I don't care how far you have to drive. Oh, we're doing we're doing Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio for that. Week. No, no, we're doing that. Here's what I want everyone else to do. Oh, okay. Okay. Again, we're doing the stop motion uh, animation thing that is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. I look forward to it, especially after the abomination that's on Disney Plus. Yeah. For everyone else, go see the whale because Brendan Fraser deserves everything. Fair. Um, yes. All right, and by, by the way, House Party, which was the remake of the original uh, comedy classic, which was supposed to be an HBO Max exclusive, but with the HBO Max Discovery merger, that thing got kicked, what appears to be in limited release, into theaters. I, I what can't a imagine. Light. Yeah, I don't, what I don't a get that. Idea. Uh, Avatar: Way of the Water is December sixteenth. That'll win its weekend. I don't. Think it will, do. but I. I still think that movie bombs. I don't know if it bombs necessarily, but well, definitely okay. doesn't do a million. It doesn't do a billion. Bombs relative to what James Cameron wants it to do. Like that thing's gonna make six hundred million pretty easily. Yeah, I was gonna say between four and six. Um, and then we get but into it's, the Chris. It's not. It's not doing what he wants it to do. Yeah, and then I don't think the... it's gonna. I, I don't think it's gonna maintain that same protracted stranglehold on the box office that the other one did. And then everything December... looks like it now. December twenty-first, yeah. December twenty-first, we've got the biopic um, for Whitney Houston's "I Want to Dance with Somebody," uh, and that's up against Puss in Boots for all the kids out there for uh, Christmas week. Your actual Christmas day. Now we're going to do Babylon, but we're not going to do Babylon until it's in wide release in January. And the other one is "Women Talking," starring Rooney Mara. Uh, and then that's it. So, um, damn you, Hollywood! In case anyone's interested, goes uh, Halloween ends. Black Adam, pray for the devil. Um, we skip a week and do election coverage, and we're back with Black Panther, then The Menu, then Strange World, then Violent Night, then Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, then Avatar, and then we end the year with a Netflix exclusive, the sequel to Knives Out, which is Glass Onion. So we are ending the year with a streaming movie after a long series of actual in-theater uh, features, which is fun. All right, and that is the money for uh, this evening. So... Sean, I know that you're trying to uh, quell your nerd rage, and we we appreciate you. We applaud you. We're here for you. But um, fuck that noise. I, I need you to unzip your pants and unravel your nerd rage for this next bit. Well, thankfully, the uh, we, we seem to have been spared the unzipping. <laughs> it's, you know, you know, whatever. whatever we are not. Mark. We are not yet streaming on the platforms that a lot encourage that. <laughs> we'll talk about our OnlyFans later. He'll, he'll he'll be back momentarily. Anyway, Robert, are you ready? Yeah, bring it on. Are you ready? Just you and me, baby. Sean said uh, he, instead of ducking out, that he just got cut off and he was like, F it, I'm done for the night, but thanks for having me on back okay. here. His exact words were, I didn't even have to exit out voluntarily. I just got cut off. So that's going to be me. It's going to be it for me for a while. I checked my connection. Have a great rest of the show. Thanks for having me on. 
It was a pleasure. Always nice to talk to Sean. He knows he's welcome here anytime. No, it was good to have you. Honestly, like me and you talking Hellraiser wouldn't have been nearly as effective since I don't not as familiar with the franchise. I like I like it when we have people who are like invested in the in the IP on. Like when we had Zach on for um, Pinocchio, brings it brings an extra level that uh, you know. But then the, but then there's what everyone came here for, and that's me and you, baby. Let's do this thing. So I need, uh, I need an adult. <laughs> so Hellraiser. The, well, that's about fair. I was gonna say everyone's just had a kumsi kumsa on it. Like, nah, it's fine, which is about where I landed. Um, I actually agree with the critical consensus, believe it or not. A gift for long-suffering fans after numerous subpar sequels. David Bruckner's Hellraiser unlocks the puzzle box for getting the franchise back on the right track. And if you say so. Well, again, like you have to understand where we're going from to get to here. This is a much more positive direction than the last several entries. <laughs> Oh, well, Valerie Complex of Deadline Hollywood Daily says, up yours, top critic. Pinhead and Lament Configuration bring no pleasure, only pain. Again, there's plenty of things to be critical about for this film. And one of the reasons I was deliberately critical is I, I wanted to take off my fandom hat. So as to not just go, boy, this is really good. I'm just so glad it doesn't suck. I think it's re- like there's there's an overcorrection in the reaction to this from a lot of people yeah and that's fine again again that's fine we've all been through a lot (laughs) i understand this me again i understand please do understand though that there's this movie is not at all above criticism there's a fair bit we can get into jonathan hickman of daily film fix says hellraiser is hopelessly convoluted when it should have gone back to the streamlined story that began the franchise See, I'm going to disagree with the convoluted part here. What this movie is, is poorly written in the sense that you can very much tell, again, you can feel the author's hand in this story a lot. And that's a big problem with the writing. It's not convoluted, but it is exponentially convenient. Emily Wheeler, a film inquiry says, now this is a fresh review, but I wanted to get your take on it. Right. For a Hellraiser movie, this is fairly prim and proper, but what's what's but what's lost in gleeful sexuality is made up for in its eerily beautiful style. Like, I don't okay. know. I don't get prim and proper out of this, even by Hellraiser standards. Um, I I think that's a pretty serious misread. I'm also gonna go out on a limb and say that again, like this movie lacks its visceral reaction. I see you found our friend. Um, and like, like you and I kind of mentioned, you know, there needed to be more of a kind of guttural sexual component to this film because that's what Hellraiser taps into and taps into so very, very well. It's what makes it disturbing. Yeah. You know, there's a, uh, there's a line from the movie. Uh, I forget who directed it, but it stars Nicolas Cage, Joaquin Phoenix, uh, James Gandolfini, Peter Stormare. It's called 8mm. Yeah. And the line from Joaquin Phoenix is he takes Nicolas Cage on a journey into the den of depravity as Nicolas Cage is a character investigating the authenticity of an alleged snuff film. (laughs) He asks him at one point, he tells him, you know, you need to be worried because if you dance with the devil, the devil doesn't change, but he changes you. And he brings that point up again at one point after they come back from an underground club scenario where he says, so, you know, you, uh, you get turned, uh, you get turned on by places like that. And Nicolas Cage rightly goes, no, 
And he goes, yeah, but you didn't exactly get turned off either, did you? And Nicholas Cage is a moment of reflection, like, huh, yeah, devil's changing you already, buddy. And, and that kind of element needs to be a bit more present in this. And it's just kind of not for this movie. And it is a missing component. All right. So we're going to end with our friend here since we haven't, we, we've missed him. We thought we ran him off of Rotten Tomatoes, but he is back, baby. Our friend, Kevin Carr, a fat guy at the movies. While it's not as visceral and hard hitting as the original or it's much maligned sequel, this is attempt- nothing. Okay. Stop, you jackass. <laughs> Can I? There's. Please- no, no, no. I have to correct this idiot. There's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with the immediate sequel to Hellraiser. He's referencing further sequels, which are much maligned for damn good reason. But if you say sequel, you mean the one immediately following. And right. that one is every bit as good, if not better, than the original Piss Off. This attempt to reboot the franchise hits the mark and doesn't pull its punches. Um, I believe we spent an hour and a half saying it does bullet punches. That's half the problem. That really is. That said, it I think it does hit the target. Mm-hmm. Again, is this a bullseye? No. Mm-hmm. But you're not shooting someone in the audience, which was well, so now, many well, other now movies. that I know that this is like this is like psychosexual, this franchise one. A little bit, yeah. Um, for all you ladies out there. Depends but, uh, it depends on the individual film. The first one very mm-hmm. much so. Well, like, I'm much like, more interested in that. Like the way when you guys, and again, I just listened to these last summer, um, and I remember that those conversations when you guys talked about it. I don't think you talked about how sexual it was. I, you guys definitely talked about how gory it was, and you know, and how visceral the kills were. And I was like, okay, well, this is not going to be for me then. If I had known that this was more of a punishment for all your sexual sins kind of a thing. <laughs> thematically thematically i would have tried to watch it and just hid my eyes like a sissy baby when it got too gory for me but i but i would have been into the theme well uh, okay backing up a step from how i've tried to sell hellraiser to you in the past let me tell you the driving tension of the first hellraiser movie the driving tension of the first hellraiser movie is a wife trying to rekindle slash reconnect an affair with her husband's brother Mm -hmm. that that's our driving tension like she's unsatisfied in her marriage she doesn't care much for her stepdaughter she had an affair with her husband's brother this being the titular frank who went off and was never satisfied with anything and she wants there was a joke on the set of the original hellraiser like one of the production i forget who it was someone in the production meeting or the production team Wanted to subtitle it because originally had different subtitles. It did it had different titles. Mm-hmm. They I didn't sell them Hellraiser for a while. But someone said, you know, we should really just call this what lengths a woman will go to to get a good fuck. Because she lures hapless men up to the attic of her house and kills them so that Frank can destroy and reincorporate their body into his as he has escaped from the Cenobites. And he comes back as like the very basic essence of what it means to be a physical human. And killing other people rebuilds his form. Well, you know, we often talk about like, if you, you know, when you watch these remakes, just skip it and watch the original. What if you haven't watched the original? One of the things that these remakes tend to do is inspire people to go back and watch them. Again, I give the Firestarter example. Yeah. Of, I don't I don't think I would have ever sat through the original Firestarter had I not been wanting to review the new one that's on Peacock, which is not a real service. Um, 
if nothing else came from my experience with this mo- with this modern Hellraiser remake, is that I'm now much more inspired than I ever have been to sit through the first one. So, what if you're gonna watch the first one, watch the second one too? Okay. Like, hey, th- hey, out there, lady, you got. We have to do. We have to do a binge watch now of Hellraiser one and two. Look, this is the only thing I say. If you're going to watch the first one, and if you mm-hmm. come out of it and you're not utterly repulsed, like, and I say that, like, if, if this is just very clearly so much not for you that you don't want to continue, mm-hmm. if you if that's what you arrive at, fair enough. If that if you enjoyed the experience, that doesn't mean fun, but if you found it a rewarding film experience, mm-hmm. watch the second one. After that, Kind of, again, if you choose to follow down that full path, know that you will step off several cliffs. <laughs> but the first two are absolutely worth watching if this is a, if this is in your wheelhouse. All right. Uh, this week on the Rattleism Broadcasting Network, tomorrow I will be out, but uh, Alexis Haina is threatening to review Werewolf by Night, which was the um, TV special on Disney Plus from Marvel based on the comic book series Werewolf by Night. Uh, just in time for Halloween. Apparently, it's getting very good marks, very good reviews. I think her and Andrew Azrosko, Azrosko, Azurpro, from the MCU's Bleeding Edge are going to be reviewing it together. So look for that. Um, Wednesday, uh, it looks like uh, Jesse's continued Unity series from Unspoken Issues will be dropping. And then for those of you looking for my beautiful face, I'll be back Thursday with myself. Uh, I'll be back Thursday with myself. Myself and Jesse Starcher will be back Thursday to continue our trip from the corner to the deuce. This time with The Wire Season 3, The Fall of the Barksdale Organization, The Rise of Marlo Stansfield, The Reformation Season. Oh, God, I hate Marlo. Hamsterdam, baby. Hamsterdam. Seriously, Marlo sucks. He's not that interesting of a character. He has one great moment in the entire, like, two and a half seasons he's a part of. And it's his um, last one. Yeah, it's his very last one. <laughs> but more on that in two months. Uh, this this month, season three. So Marlo, Yeah, again, Marlo sucks. Like, he's so profoundly I, uninteresting. I, I'll talk about this on Thursday, but that line that Lester gives McNulty about you're, wait, you're sitting around waiting for moments that never come. That is a great line. That is, I mean, there is some stuff that Lester says to McNulty that while it relates specifically to McNulty's character, is something I think is universally relatable. Yeah. And, I mean, 3 has other good stuff. Again, Marlo's terrible, but mm. more Idris Elba's a good thing. Oh, the stuff... The, that last bit where, with Avon and Stringer, um, you know... On the roof. Sort of, yeah, like, lamenting the end of their friendship and knowing they're trying to kill each other is yeah. great. It's just Shakespearean great stuff. Anyway, it, more it on really that... really is. <laughs> more on that this Thursday. Um... Uh, this whole month we've been go- going into the archives and releasing the Everyone Loves a Bad Guy's Halloween specials. So, so far we've got Hauntings, Universal Monsters, Unseen Evil, and Death. This weekend coming up, we take a break from that and we'll be going into the Long Road to Ruin archive for the two-part series on The Crow. I don't remember if it was The Crow or The Terminator ones where I almost quit podcasting because you guys were picking on me. Um, <laughs> I was... I was... I was not part of the Crow franchise review. Okay, I, I feel I feel like that might have been like Sean and Ben picking at me on that show. I don't mean I because I, I thought it was Terminator, and I listened back to that. I'm like, no, this one was fine. So I think it's the Crow one, where at the end of it, I was like ready to punch someone. So that'll be this weekend. We'll see. I haven't listened to it in a while. 
so we'll be looking where, at the where, where poor Mark has to deal with two super fans of the IP. Yeah. So we'll be looking at Crow, the first two Crow movies on Saturday, and uh, we'll be re-airing the show about the last two Crow movies on Thursday. And then um, fairly big week of podcasting next week. Uh, we're doing a long road to ruin that Drani requested a year ago, which is the of Michael Myers trilogy, which is essentially uh, Halloween 4, 5, and 6, and H2O. So we'll be reviewing the rest of the Halloween movies we haven't reviewed yet. And then we'll be reviewing Halloween Ends on Tuesday. Uh, Alexis is doing with you, as a matter of fact, Midnight Club on Wednesday, and that's it for that week. So that's my plugs. Whip, wrap up your plugs really quickly. So let's get out of here. I cover mixed martial arts and professional wrestling over at 411mania.com. I cover AEW's Dark Elevation on Mondays. In fact, I'll be doing that once we get done here. Yay. I cover MLW when they threaten to release stuff on Thursdays. They keep saying they're coming back in fall. They've shot material. I don't know. I, I think they're waiting on distribution rights and whatnot. So either I actually enjoy MLW as a general rule. They're very well booked. Uh, Alexander Hammerstone, baby. Arr. Uh, Yeah, you and Pat, man. I don't dislike Hammer for the record. I, I like him a great deal. Look, uh, that is a, I, I understand you're not like sexually attracted to men, but it, I think we would all, all agree. Alexander Hammerstone is a sexy beast. Uh, I'm not going to go that far. <laughs> I'm just saying. You're allowed a, to say. He's a very attractive fellow. Uh, depends on how, depends on where his tan is at the moment. All right. He, actually, he, he had a shirt that was a scale uh, and it, it was the Hogan different year mm -hmm. scale. And he wanted to get to Hogan 80 something. Nice. All <laughs> it's right. hilarious. Come on, come and, on, come on. And WWE SmackDown on Fridays. So tune in as we continue building towards sweet Saudi blood money and more Logan Paul and Roman Reigns. Don't give that a thumbs up. <laughs> don't, don't. <coughs> Just don't. I won't be home for either Paul thing. I, I'll be out. I'll be seeing the toadies at Janice Landing the night of the Jake Paul fight. And then whenever fucking Saudi blood money is, I know I won't be around. And I cover uh, mixed martial arts action this week. UFC on ESPN plus seventy. It's a card. <laughs> if you, uh, I'll be covering that Saturday. If you want the full preview of that, I do so on the on this week's episode of the four one one Ground and Pound MMA podcast, which I host. This week's episode is about thirty minutes. I am a short ask this time around. <laughs> Not a lot to talk about. Don't know what else to tell you. <laughs> Sometimes it be like that. It really does. So. Tune in for that. Uh, this next coming Sunday, I recorded Sunday evenings, uh, will be a review of that episode and a preview of UFC 280, the UFC pay-per-view event, two title fights. Uh, should be a good one. So full preview of that will be forthcoming. All right, folks, thank you for joining us. We're very happy to have Sean Comer back. Well, uh, apparently, he'll be back um, at some point to do more stuff with us. So for Robert Winfrey, I'm Mark Radledge. This has been Damn You Hollywood. Be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>